It is an honor. All right. Well, for all, most of history, we've been fascinated with the last things that people say, their last words. Because when they get so close to death and all the rest of kind of their, their life and their concerns, their interests have faded away, and they're really faced with maybe the fear or their own fears or the uncertainty of taking the plunge that you don't come back from in this life, you find out what's really in their heart. You find out what's important to them. You find out a, a quick insight into their soul. Leonardo da Vinci, I'm going to give you a few. Leonardo da Vinci, he was a famous artist in the 14 and 1500s. He's famous for painting the Sistine Chapel, which is one of the most celebrated and visited artworks uh, in all of history. Um, he painted the Mona Lisa. Uh, he designed sketches of airplanes before airplanes existed. The guy was brilliant and artistic and creative. And on his deathbed, he was visited by the king of France who held his head to receive communion. And da Vinci said to the king of France while receiving communion, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Oscar Wilde, the writer, uh, he died uh, in the year 1900. And uh, when he was moved from his home uh, into a, uh, a hospital, he was rolled into the hospital room and uh, he reportedly turned to the nurse and said, either that wallpaper goes or I do. General John Sedgwick, he was a Union commander uh, in the Civil War, um, and at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, um, he said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance, and he was killed by a long-range musket shot a few seconds later. Karl Marx was a revolutionary, and he said to his housekeeper, who urged him to tell her his last words so she could write them down for posterity, he said, go on, get out of here. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Pancho Villa, another revolutionary, told his bodyguard after he was shot by his own assassin, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. <laughs> My favorite one of all, Heinrich Hein, was a German poet. He died in the mid-1800s. And he was born in a Christian family, but he wandered and he really lived as an atheist and a, uh, a philosopher for most of his life and really tore down or made fun of the church uh, and Christians um, for most of his life. But uh, eight years before he died, he returned to faith. Uh, and he also, um, he returned to faith at, at, in a similar time when he uh, became paralyzed uh, from long-term lead poisoning. Um, and he really lived, he didn't move really out of his room for the last eight years of his life. He continued to write poetry, um, much of which glorifies God and just has a touch of humility and compassion that's just beautiful. Um, but he said uh, to his children, God will pardon me, that's his line of work. Before Jesus left this earth, he spoke some important things to his friends about life, about the future, and our mission as Christ followers. His last words are by far the most famous of all. We call it the Great Commission. But it was more than a commission. It was more than just something He told us to do. It's who He told us to be. And those words matter to our church today. They matter to our future. And they matter to our community. So what were the last words? Well, it actually depends on which book of the Bible you read. Matthew says one thing, Mark says another, Luke says yet another, and John says another. Interestingly enough, all the words recorded were reportedly said at really the same gathering 
after Jesus took his disciples out. He he had been raised from the dead, and he had been with them a number of different times, and he took them out as he had done before at the very beginning of his ministry to go fishing, and they rolled in, you know, a net-breaking catch of fish to reinforce the fact that they would be fishers of men with supernatural power, just that he could make, he, that, that all creation really moved at the impulse to the Spirit of God. And after that catch, he sat down for breakfast with all the disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and four different things were reported as his last words. So which one of them is right? I'd like to illustrate this concept for you. God describes himself as light. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, I'll make you the light of the world. And light, like the sun, is a full spectrum. It's, we know it as bright, as warm, as illuminating. But we don't see all the the colors in that light until they've been filtered or they can be seen through a lens. There's a picture of a prism that can actually divide. You can see that all the colors of the rainbow, all the colors, the fullness of the, the visible and invisible spectrums of light are all contained in the majesty of the sun. We just don't discern it or can't see it, the individual parts, until we see it through a lens. And so I would tell you, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the lenses by which we see Jesus in full color. So, Mihai, Jared, Mel, and Mike, can you help me out here? Shine green. All right. So, Matthew was a publican. He was a former tax collector. He was one of the 12 disciples. He was someone who intimately understood the social context of rich and poor, outcasts and royalty. The light of the Holy Spirit shined on Jesus through him, illuminates the social context of the gospel. The narrative tells how the Messiah, rejected by Israel, welcomes every nation and finally sends the disciples out to the whole world. Matthew focuses more on the teachings of Jesus than his miraculous acts. Many denominations focus on the last words of Jesus from this book, and Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Now shine red. Mark was a fisherman and a friend of Peter, but he was not one of the 12 disciples. He was a simple man, and he wrote the shortest account of Jesus' life. However, he describes the acts of Jesus in the most detail, implying that the miracles of Jesus best prove him to be the Son of God and essential to our faith. Evangelical and charismatic churches often look at the last words of Jesus from this book, and Jesus said, preach the gospel to every living creature and signs will follow those who believe. Now shine blue. Luke was a Greek physician converted to faith by the apostle Paul. He followed the apostles around and recorded everything that was going on in detail, like a scientific journal. Luke wrote the book of Acts as an eyewitness, but he wrote the gospel according to Luke as a compilation of primary source interviews from others who had known Jesus and his family. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record the history and genealogy of Jesus that could withstand the most brutal scrutiny over the centuries by skeptics, scientists, and historians. Luke also records many parables and prophecies of Jesus that only he could fulfill. And this illuminates how Jesus spoke and related to those around him. And Jesus said, you will be my witnesses with power from the Holy Spirit. And now shine yellow, which kind of looks more like white because I couldn't find a yellow LED flashlight. But you'll get the point in a minute. John was Jesus' best friend. He was a philosopher a poet, an intensely emotional man that Jesus referred to as a son of thunder and the disciple whom he loved. The Holy Spirit inspired John to, he, the Holy Spirit inspired John to illuminate our personal relationship with Jesus as the source of eternal life, the goodness and mercy of our heavenly Father, and the theological meaning 
of Jesus as the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. John's words are beautiful and emotive. Seekers around the globe have been given translated copies of John for centuries, finding a path home to God for the first time. And Jesus said, feed my sheep, take care of my people, and follow me. They all sound like Jesus. So which of these books accurately records what Jesus said on that morning at breakfast with his disciples? All of them. And if you only look at one account, at one gospel, you might think Jesus is all green or all blue or all red or all yellow. But when you see them all together, they don't turn brown and muddy. You can see the brightness and illumination of sunlight again. You see them all together you will know Jesus is the fullness of all light for the world. So today we're going to take a look at the part of the conversation recorded in Matthew and in John. And next week we're going to look at the part of the conversation as recorded in Luke and Mark. So the big ideas from Matthew and John today that we're going to dig into are that we have a nation to disciple and that we, everyone in this room, can baptize. It's not just for ordained ministers anymore. Just saying. If that's weird, we'll unpack it in a little bit. I might mess with your theology a little bit, so I, I apologize in advance. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to look at that we are part of the gospel and that we will be given prevailing power. Amen? All right. So in Matthew... This is the part of the conversation that Matthew records. Then Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if we observe how many Christians live out this passage we might conclude that they believe something like this. And I'm forewarning you, this is a parody. So it will be a little funny. Don't be too convicted about it. They might, you might think they believe, you know, sometimes I mention a few things about church to my friends and hope they will take notice. And occasionally I develop enough courage to convince someone to try church instead of going to the beach on Sunday. And then when they come, I hope they stick around long enough until we do water baptisms after church. It's so exciting to watch people get dunked in a warm tank of water while our pastor baptizes them. And then they will be ready to take all the discipleship classes we offer in Sunday school. I'm glad we send missionaries to, do, to other nations to really fulfill the Great Commission. You know, I actually gave a little money on Mission Sunday last week, so, you know, I'm doing my part. There's only one problem with this interpretation. It's not Christianity. It's just American churchianity. It's kind of the model we've built for ourselves. And there's not, it's not that there's nothing good in it, and I'm not trying to demean the classes and the services and the things. It's not it. But it's not the meat of what we're called to do as Christ followers. Let's take a look at the other passage in John. Many people think of this passage, they don't really teach it as part of the Great Commission, but it happened in the same conversation. They often will teach this as like a one-on-one -on -one conversation between Peter and Jesus, when in reality, Jesus was talking to Peter, but he was with his, all of his disciples, and he was talking to Peter for the purpose of everyone, all of his disciples, all of his friends learning. It was a message for all of them corporately, even though he was using Peter as his example to be embarrassed about when he was uh, using them in the, the interplay. He knew Peter could take it. So... Uh, when the disciples and Jesus had finished eating, this is the breakfast on the beach of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus said to Simon Peter, in front of all of the other disciples, his friends, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. It's all part of the same conversation. If, I, if we observe how many Christians live out this passage, this is another parody, we might conclude they believe something like this. I show how much I love Jesus by being nice to people at church. After all, God's sheep are all in the pews. When one of the young moms has a baby, I even volunteer to cook a meal for the family, you know, to feed the sheep, since they will be busy with other things. I know that the church has members in need, so I give when I can so the church can help. And since I'm doing these wonderful things, I know I'm following Jesus and he will take care of me until the end. And the death part is weird. I'll have to ask somebody about that. You and I get hung up on words and what we think they mean. The problem lies when we take the words that Jesus said and we take the way we frame up or the way we understand the word today and we apply it to our understanding of the Scripture as it was written. And the words in these passages that we get hung up on are these. Nations, sheep, disciples, and baptizing. So let's dig into this a little. When Jesus said we have a nation to disciple, what is the nation he is talking about? Because we often think of nation as a synonym for a country, like there are many nations in the world. But in this context, nation is not referring to just countries. This is not a call to be answered by a few missionaries traveling to distant lands. This is a call to every Christ follower to see anyone and everyone as eligible for your attention and discipleship. Nation refers to every tribe, to every tongue, to every ethnicity, to every social status, to every level of education. It refers to any way we classify and organize ourselves as people. A nation is just a way that people gather together. It's any way where we collect ourselves. And Jesus didn't call us just to disciple our own nation or the people in our own organizations, in our own families, in our own schools, although he did call us to that. He also called us to go and make disciples of all nations, to step across to the other side of the street, to where the Samaritan is, to the person who doesn't agree with us, who didn't come from the same place, who might be an outcast, who might be a risky person, who might be from a different political party, who might be voting for a different president. We are called to step across those lines in the name of Jesus. We're called to be out in a risky place because where there is great risk and discomfort, there is often the greatest display of love and power. That's when the name of Jesus is elevated. That's when the banner of victory, that's when the meaning of love can be seen. Is when we step out of just our own nations and across into other nations. And there are many nations even in this community. There are many people there's, from different cultures, from different backgrounds, from different schools, from different states, from different countries. And they're all here for different reasons. They're from different and many nations. And we are called to reach them all. We are called to disciple them all, not just the ones we already agree with, not just the ones we're already comfortable around that speak the same 
idioms and language that we do. Our nations are filled with God's sheep. And so where is our nation? Where is this ministry? When Jesus said go, he didn't say to extract people from the nations, invite them to church, lead them in a sinner's prayer at the altar, and then start to plug them into discipleship classes about, you know, uh, finance classes and marriage classes and the, all these different classes. This, this is not really what, this is not the, really the place where the discipleship or our ministry happens. Church on Sunday mornings and, and Sunday school classes, and it is essential to our Christian life. It's, our church is our community, our family, our place of refuge and peace, but it's not our primary place of ministry, service, or work. This is not where the magic happens. This is where we get refueled. This is where we get filled up. This is our place of refuge. It's our place of peace. It's not our place of work, our ministry. This is not where ministry happens, or some ministry happens, but it's not where everything, this is not what Jesus was talking about in the Great Commission. There are many people who won't come to church as they are, but they still need Jesus, and they need to be discipled. He told us to go. He told us to feed them, to teach them, to take care of them. And so who are the sheep? Is there a connection between sheep and nations? Is there a connection between the passage we read in Matthew and the passage we read from John? from that same conversation on the beach in Galilee? Yes. It's all part of the same thought. Sheep aren't just church members. Let me illustrate it. When Jesus fed people, who did he feed? Everyone. Did he set up a cafeteria at church and invite people to come get their free turkeys? Or did he go into the community, into the place where the people were, and he took what was there, and he divided it, and he blessed it, and he multiplied it for everyone who was there, not just the people who already believed in him. It wasn't a litmus test of faith that made them sheep. It was his great love that was discipling them in those moments. It was his great love for them. It was how he showed and demonstrated his love, and the worth of the people by feeding them there. That was his way of discipling them in that moment. He also talked about the lost sheep in the, in the parable of the lost sheep. The lost sheep represents a lost person. But I can tell you a lost sheep is still one of his sheep. Every person on planet earth is one of God's sheep, either one in his pasture or a lost sheep he is looking for. And we should take it seriously. Sheep aren't just here. Sheep are everywhere. Sheep are in every nation. And it's up to us to go to them and seek them out with the Father's love. So what is a disciple? That's probably the easiest question. What's a disciple? A follower of Jesus, yes, that's easy definition. But the harder question is when does discipleship start? Do we keep our life in Christ in some kind of secret box, hoping someone will pray a sinner's prayer in order to find it? Or do we begin the arduous work of discipling our neighbors as Jesus did? See, we have this churchy pattern that goes like this. We share our faith, we invite someone to church, we lead them in a salvation prayer, and then we start to disciple them. And by disciple them, we need discipleship classes, like in a church classroom, either through worship services here and a reasonably good message from, you know, your, the, the pastor or the fill-in guy like today, um, 
we, all the classes we offer, prayer classes and spiritual growth classes and marriage classes and faith classes and healing classes and finance classes and parenting classes and a, you know, maybe a once in a while a one-on-one with a pastor, that's what we, we think is discipleship. But is that really teaching people to follow and obey everything that Jesus has commanded us? The problem with this model is it subtly lets us all off the hook. And it leaves a lot of people lost. People learn what our life teaches them. People learn what our life teaches them. It's not a license to be silent and just hope they get it. But it's a call to be open and transparent and friendly and compassionate and intentional about connecting with people every day so people can see and learn from our life and our struggles and our challenges and our faith and our character and our witness and our charity. And so they can learn. That's how they are discipled. They are discipled from seeing our life. And so how do we do this? Jesus said in that message how to do it. He gave us the key. Go and make disciples of every nation, comma, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that obviously means that to disciple them, we have to bring them after church, dunk them in a tank of water, and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what disciples them, right? We can baptize. Let's take a look at another translation of the passage from Matthew. This is from the complete Jewish Bible, um, which is, uh, it's, it's, it was translated by Syriac and Hebrew um, scholars. It kind of gives more of a a Jewish or Hebrew cultural look at that passage. And I think it will illuminate something or some things that we, maybe we don't see in most of the translations we read. Yeshua came and talked with his friends, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make people from all nations into Talmudim, which means the family of God or followers of Jesus. Go and make people into the family of God immersing them into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Rosh HaKodesh, which is just the Hebrew word for the Holy Spirit or the divine indwelling presence of God Almighty. Immerse them into the reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The name, when we baptize people in the name, that is into the full reality, the, full, the fullness of all that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is. And it's us who do the baptizing. We are immersing people around us with our life into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because when we do that, that is baptism in the truest sense of the word. When people have been immersed in the great love of our Heavenly Father and the mercy of His Son, Jesus, and the comfort and the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit from your life, How natural will it be to take the plunge in the water tank after church? And then water baptism will be what it was meant to be, an outward sign of an inward reality, a symbol, a confirmation of the person saying, yes, the body of Christ, Jesus himself is represented by the church. The people of God have, in fact, baptized me in the fullness and immersed me in the reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now I'm making a declaration to the world that yes, it has happened in Jesus' name. So what does it look like to immerse people in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? How do we teach others to obey all that Jesus commanded? What is that immersion look like? Because that's what baptism really means. It means to be immersed, not just sprinkled, not just a little cup. It means they've been 
immersed in the river of living water that's pouring out of our life, out of our hearts, out of our deep love and sacrifice for people around us. I want to give you three principles or three just little touchstones to think about of how we can immerse those around us, our nations, God's filled with God's sheep. One, we are open. We must live in such a way that others can see and learn from our struggles, our faith, our character, our charity, our attitude, our love for others. The greatest act of humility, really, that we can do on a daily basis is be transparent and authentic in front of people. Not show them just the story after it's all wrapped up, but they can see the life of faith that we live, us standing for things that haven't come yet, us repentant and apologetic for when we mess up and when we sin, us applauding the great love of Jesus, observing where he touches people and the works that he does and the signs that we see in our work, in our family, being a witness to those things, showing those things. If we don't befriend and we don't allow people to really see, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, if, we don't, if they don't see it, they won't know it to be true. They have to see. They have to be able to come inside our life. And how many of us after being a believer and a Christ follower for one year, for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years, for 30 years, how many of us still are intentionally making friends with people who aren't already Christians? And we wonder why we can't find anyone to invite to church. Because people don't come be just because they're invited. People come because they've been befriended. They've been immersed. The next one is we are obedient. We must become intimately acquainted with the narrow path to embrace the joy that comes from a life lived close to God following Jesus. I want to say that obedience is its own reward. We are not obedient to follow rules. We are not obedient just so that other people will see that we're different. We're not obedient just because we're making our daily investment to get more holy. We are obedient because that makes us the closest to God. And being close to Him is our reward. That's our joy. Our fellowship with our Savior, our fellowship with God is its own reward. Our obedience draws us close to Him. And when people see that, when people see the substance of our faith, what they can't see. That's what disciples, and that's what lures them in. That's what allows them to picture, and not just picture, but see themselves. That's what allows them to be warmed. It, that's what brings salt to what they're eating. It, it brings light to the path they're walking. Because sometimes our own disobedience or our distance from God, discredits our faith. And the last one, we need to be receivable. That's a funny word, I know. But Jesus told his friends, those who receive you, receive me. And those who receive me, receive him who sent me. And we often look at that and I've heard a number of teachings that, that really puts the responsibility in that passage on the person doing the receiving. Like, it's up to that person to receive me and whatever I'm saying, and if they receive me, then they'll receive Jesus. So we can pretty much go around and preach and teach and do whatever we want, not whatever we want, but we can, it, it's, it's up to them if they receive us or not. If the, you know, if they receive us, then, then, then they're going to receive Jesus. And if they don't, oh well. I don't believe that was the heart that Jesus was saying. I don't believe that's where he was putting the responsibility. He was telling his friends to be receivable. 
Because if people can't receive you because of your pride and your rebellion, your anger, your irreverence, your harshness, your cynicism, your judgment, your victimhood, or your apathy, how will those same people receive the Jesus that is in you? He was putting the responsibility on his disciples and his friends to be receivable. He was saying, go, so that when people receive you, make yourselves receivable so they can receive you and they can receive the Jesus that's in you and they can receive the one who sent Jesus who loves them so very much that he died and he sent his son to die on the cross for them and that he raised his son from the dead and reconciled them into the family of God. Be receivable. Lead with love. Lead with charity, with generosity, with wisdom, with sacrifice, with help, with a listening ear, a willingness to grieve, with wholehearted ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk about next week. We have to be receivable and behave and talk and connect with people more than we correct them. When we connect with them, They can receive us and receive the Jesus in us and receive the one who sent Jesus. I'd like to give you a few examples of what immersion looks like. Two of them are going to be, they're going to tell you four stories. Two of them are about people that go to this church, things that have happened recently, and they may seem small but they're big in the people whom they touched and they're big in the eyes of God. I'm going to tell you a story about two friends of mine that live in Cambodia and I'm going to tell you a quick story about a historical figure, all of which I believe just immersed their nation in the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How many of you know Phil Purden? So Phil... um, Joined our worship team, I don't know, a year or two ago, um, and he has white hair. Um, he plays the acoustic guitar, sings in the tenor sometimes. He's one of the most kind and gentle men I've ever met. When he first joined the worship team, he just asked, hey, can I, can I come and just pray for the team? And so he'd come for months And he'd pray for the team during practice. He'd meet with people one-on-one and just pray for them. And he committed to praying for the team and the people on the team for weeks and months at a time before he ever took a place and started singing or playing with us. That's not the story. Phil worked as a manager at Lynn's Bakery in Cambria for a long time. Have you you ever had the Olalaberry pies from Lynn's? Okay. He was a manager there. He recently took a new job as a manager at a different company in San Luis to be closer to home. But during his last week at Lynn's, Facebook was flooded with thanks from his coworkers. But one in particular caught my attention. It read like this. Thank you very much for being the great person you are. I will miss you so very much. I will always remember when I would ask you, do you have time for this, for that? And you would say back, for you, Lily, anything. I will miss you every morning and you saying, good morning, Lily, with joy in your eyes. So good luck in your new job. Thank you for praying for my family. You are a very good person. Thank you. Doesn't sound like the person was a believer. He's definitely not talking like a churchy, somebody who's been churched. But something caught when I, if you can, I I just, when I read that, it just, the words, for you, Lily, anything. That wasn't said as something trite or elementary or seductive or cliche. He was allowing the love of the Father to come through not just his words, because he wasn't just saying it, his life that was open and obedient and receivable before the people he worked with made such a context that those words were the immersion into the reality of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Friends, those are people that will come to church when they're invited. Those are people 
that have been so touched and so enlightened and so helped and considered and valued that they're just torn up when something like that gets taken away. When Jesus has been brought to them and now they see, they may not use the words, but when Jesus is moving somewhere else, they're (gasps) gasping for air. Those are people that have been already in the midst of a baptism. They've already been in the process of being discipled because it was Phil's love and his prayer and his compassion that made the reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit real. So you know Mike Burns, uh, he's our director of worship arts. Well, this season he coached a t-ball team in San Luis with his, with his son. You know you can coach kids in the name of Jesus, right? Well, he spent the season encouraging them. You know, I don't know how good of a coach he was. I don't even know how many games they won. But encouraging these kids, connecting with them, training them, loving on them, um, helping them out, making them feel good training them up, inspiring them. And he gets so just enamored with these kids that by the end of the season, you know, they usually have like a pizza party where it says, thank you, you know, to everyone. And he just, he goes to the Lord in prayer and and says, God, will you give me something, a word of encouragement, a blessing, something that's prophetic, something that can, can, that's a gift from your table, that's food, bread from heaven that can be given to these kids. And so he prays and God gives him something for each kid. And on Thursday night at the pizza party, he gets each kid up and he just delivers his blessing to each kid that just waters their soul, highlights their strengths, what they're good at, what their potential is, what he sees in them, what God sees in them. And so then you fast forward Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday morning, he drops off little Mike at at school and he sees one of the other kids from the team get out of the car and she's still got the medal on. And the parent comes over and says, Mike, she hasn't taken it off since Thursday night. She went to bed with it. That's what a child looks like when they've been immersed in the reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Her discipleship had already begun. I don't know whether the family goes to church or not, but she's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You're looking at a picture of Chen La and Taya, those are the two adults. And I met Chen La and Taya in 2002 on my first mission trip to Cambodia. And they were newlyweds and also new believers. Um, Chen La was from a poor, a poor village in a, um, one of the provinces in more rural Cambodia. And Taya's family was more wealthy from an, from an urban area. They, and Chen La had come... Um, had come to the capital to start a business and try and make a way for himself that was other than rice farming. Um, and so they get saved, they meet at this church, uh, and they get married. And I, I, I met them as they were, you know, building a jewelry business um, and doing worship ministry and pastoral care ministry. And did just, they were just full force, full passion, full throttle um, into the, into the, ministry at this church in Phnom Penh, which is, um, you know, we've sent teams over there quite a few times um, with Moni Mok and River of Life Church in Cambodia. Well, fast forward 12 years. 18 months ago, Chen La and Taya felt called by the Lord to go back to the province where Chen La's from and do ministry in really one of the poorest places on earth. And can you imagine with three little kids, the same age as my kids almost, 
taking them away from a place where they're upward, you know, they're stepping stones in life. This was taking them away from the center of education, away from the place of protection, into a place that was less sanitary, had less opportunity, less protection. In all ways, it looks backwards, except in the eyes of Jesus. And they take and relocate their family out to this province. And he's trying to make ends meet, giving scooter rides and still making jewelry and sending it to the capital. But he's got, he starts a ministry to the kids because once you, the children in that village, there's about 800 people in the village. And once you get to be about 10 years old, you're old enough to go work in the rice fields, in the rice paddies. And so the kids that are under 10 in the village basically just wander around during the day. There's not really schools um, still in that part of the world. And so what do they do all day? So Chen La and Taya starts taking in these kids, feeding them a meal a day, training them in life skills, in personal hygiene, teaching them how to read, teaching them the Bible, teaching them faith, discipling them immersing them in the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They have given their lives for the gospel. They're immersing this nation, this village, in the love of Jesus. Because of the bridges they crossed where everyone was going that way and they were going this way. When all signs of opportunity went that way for them and they were going this way. When all signs that if you want to make a way for yourself in this world, it was that way. They were going this way. And when you start doing that, the name of Jesus becomes a banner over you. The blessing of Jesus can't help but propel you into your God-given purpose. Because you are following Jesus to where his sheep are. This is what a village looks like in the midst of a baptism. What does it mean for those kids to grow up with them every day instead of no one? And Thomas Biles. Thomas Biles was born in 1870 in Yorkshire, England. He was a pastor's kid. After spending his 20s as in college, he was one of those forever students. He went from college to college to university to university. He collected degrees on the way. And then finally, at age 32, he had to finally do something with his life. So he got ordained and became a pastor, like his dad. And he began pastoring a small church in Yorkshire where he was born. But in 1912, he was invited to officiate at the wedding of his younger brother, William, in New York City, which led him to book passage on the Titanic. Biles was walking the upper deck in the cold night air. So it was about 45 degrees outside. It was nighttime over the cold ocean. The ocean is so cold that icebergs were in it that weren't melting. We're talking cold. And he's probably thanking God for the majesty and the beauty of this great ship that he gets to enjoy this floating majestic passage across the dark and chilled waters, and then the Titanic hits an iceberg, and slowly but surely, mayhem breaks loose. People start going literally crazy because the staff know, and soon everybody knows, this ship ain't going to make it, and there's not enough lifeboats for everyone. So what does he do? He goes straight to the stern where the second and third class passengers are. And he helps as many of them as he could up to the deck and onto lifeboats. Twice in the first several hours, he was invited onto a lifeboat. He declined. There's still people here. He keeps shuttling people from the lower decks up to try to get them on board because nobody else in the first class is going to go down and do it. None of the staff. Everyone's thinking about themselves and they're thinking about their rights and their privileges and their rightful spot on one of these lifeboats, which he was traveling first class and he had a rightful spot on the lifeboat, but he didn't take it, not once, 
not twice. Then towards the end, a third, he was offered a third time, a chance, a spot on a lifeboat, one of the last lifeboats. And he was reported by the people in that lifeboat in a journal that he politely and courteously declined saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And he watched this, the lifeboats go knowing there weren't any left because there were still over a hundred second and third class passengers still on the boat. And in that moment, he executed a choice from a decision that he had made peace with long ago, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in that moment, he discipled a nation. What did he do? He recited scripture. He received prayers of confession. He led prayers of salvation. He sang hymns. And I would contend with you, there wasn't one soul who went down that night that wasn't saved and reconciled into God's family. So on that day, the Titanic may have sunk, but for that day, 120 people who were second and third class outcasts from society came to know Jesus because one man stayed on the boat. So who is willing to follow Jesus onto the boat your nation is on? You know, I'm tired of people complaining that their workplaces aren't Christian enough. You're there. Maybe God has you there for a reason. Maybe you are the only Jesus these people will know before their time is up. Like Jesus prophesied to Peter in our passage from John. I'm paraphrasing. You used to do what you want, but following me into the world to save people may cost your freedom, your rights, your comfort, or even your life. And so even if it costs you, your life will you stay. Will you follow Jesus into the world? Because that's what Jesus did for us. He boarded the boat we were on that was bound for destruction, and he stayed on it until it was finished, even though it cost him his life.